Welcome to the Habit Podcast, conversations with writers about writing. I'm Jonathan Rogers, your host. At the end of every episode of this podcast, I ask my guests which writers make them want to write. Charles Portis is a name that has come up several times. His novels, especially True Grit and The Dog of the South, certainly make me want to write. Roy Blunt once said, Charles Portis could be Cormac McCarthy if he wanted to, but he'd rather be funny. I don't suppose there could be a better summation of what I love about Charles Portis. Mr. Portis died on February 17, 2020, two weeks before the release date of this episode. My friend David Kern loves Charles Portis as much as I do, so I called him to reminisce. David Kern runs the Searcy Institute's podcast network and hosts the Close Reads podcast, the Daily Poem podcast, and Libromania, a podcast for the book-obsessed. I commend those podcasts to you. A slightly edited version of this conversation is being posted as an episode over at Libromania. Uh, David Kern, I'm so glad we're having some time to talk about Charles Portis. Yeah, likewise. Uh, I can't imagine that there are many writers who would be more fun to just, you know, just talk about and celebrate yeah. and spend some time with. Yeah, I know. I I have to admit, I didn't realize well, uh, uh, Charles Portis was still alive until a couple of months before he died. Hmm. Uh, I, I had researched him in the last year for something. And so I knew that he was alive, but I, I didn't know that he w- was um, in poor health. I mean, he was old, so it's not surprising. Yeah. But I, it's also not surprising that we didn't know that because he's very private. Yeah, right. That's right. He, he'd, he'd been private his whole writing life. And then I guess he'd been in a memory care facility or something for a few years before he uh, was in hospice for a couple of years. It seems like he wasn't private, though, in the way that, uh, say, J.D. Salinger was, where he uh-huh. was truly reclusive. I think he was, he was just, he just valued not being in the public eye. Right. Because everything you read about him in the eulogies and in the, the stories in to the New York Times and in, in local Arkansas newspapers, seems like he was a very jovial guy. You know, yeah. you were his friend. He was a delight to be around, which uh-huh. isn't surprising given his books. Yeah, right. He just didn't care about the all the stuff that goes with being, you know, a celebrated literary figure. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I uh, understand he... Uh, you know, on his, like to work on his cars and things like that. I mean, yeah, he's a yeah. very regular guy. Uh, that, that makes him, there's something very endearing about him in that way. I think yeah. It makes his, it comes across that personality, that, that point of view comes across in his work too. Yeah. Yeah. And of course he, um, he had a, um, he had a career as a journalist in New York city that he just sort of threw overboard and, and moved back to Arkansas uh, to write fiction. Uh, which I think is, is really interesting. It's kind of so, a Wendell Berry thing about him. Yeah, yeah. Um, when, uh, so Charles Portis, of course, um, wrote True Grit. Is, is, that's his best known uh, novel. I guess he wrote five novels, is that right? So it started with Nora Wood, then True Grit. Yeah. And, and then the Dog the of the three, South. Yeah, the three about that involved Flim Flam Men, Dog <laughs> of the South, and uh, Masters of Atlantis, and Gringos. And neither you nor I have read Gringos, so we need to do that. Yeah, no, that was that was 1990, which I didn't realize. I thought that was actually wow. earlier, but it was in, in the 90s. Huh. And then he didn't write anything for the last 30 years of his life. Well, yeah. nothing, no significant novels. Right. How did you uh, get started reading Charles Portis? That's a great question. Um, 
I think probably through seeing the original True Grit movie mm-hmm. and then discovering this is a book and then going to read True Grit probably sometime in, in high school. I read it for the first time. But I didn't read all of his other stuff until much later. Uh, mm-hmm. I don't think I really... Re- I mean, I loved Western stories, so True Grit was the first one I turned to. But I didn't read... I think Norwood was the second one, and I think I read that um, maybe 10 years ago. Uh-huh. Like that. Um, yeah. And then I kind of dove into all of his, you know, well, I guess not Gringo's, but I've since reread True Grit multiple times. Yeah. It's all going to sound I know, I love that. And do you know the audio book with Donna Tart? Oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah. They're so good. Yeah. They're um, great. He, his books make for great audiobooks. Yeah. Dog of the South audiobook is fantastic. The one that's on yeah. Audible. I don't know if you've heard that one. I haven't. No. It's great. No. Um, I, whenever, in my podcast, I always ask people who are the writers that make you want to write. And for me, the answer to that question is Charles Portis more than, more than anybody. I mean, when I read that guy, I'm like, I want to go do this. Not that I, you know, not that I feel like I can do it as well as he can do it, but, <laughs> but it makes, makes me want to try, you know? Yeah. Yeah. And uh, matter of fact, so you said you've, you've read his, his about 10 years ago is when you started reading and stuff. That's, that's about when I started reading it. Um, uh, my friend Andrew Peterson uh, read Dog of the South, and he said, as he read it, he, he thought that's the kind of thing that I would be into. And I think I'd already written the Charlotte. <laughs> that's a compliment. <laughs> yeah, I know. Isn't it? <laughs> and uh, and so he gave me a copy of the Dog of the South, and I was like, Good grief! Where has this been all my life? You know, because I had, I knew the um, I knew the True Grit movie, but had not had not read the book and had. Yeah. Had, uh, uh, but yeah, I um, uh, the. I think because you know because uh, Charles Porter is so interested in charlatans, um, and that's just one of my one of my interests. One of my literary interests is you know charlatans and and um, just flim flam artists in general. You know, and I love caper movies and all that kind of stuff. Oh yeah, yeah. Well, we could do a whole podcast just on great caper movies. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> it's interesting um, that you, it's interesting that you suggest you talk about capers because I was thinking while listening to the Dog of the South again, how in, in his books there's always this sort of road journey, road yeah. story going on at the core of it, whether it's in True Grit and they're off looking for, you know, someone who killed Matty Ross's father, whatever it is. But at the same time, although in True Grit there are some gunfights and things like that, sort of not a lot actually happens in his books, except that it's people discovering new things from their point of view. So mm-hmm. like in, in, in Dog of the South, kind of not a lot happens. He just kind of wanders from one place to another. And he's sort of, he's, for people who don't know, he's trying to chase down his wife and her ex-husband who have run away in his car. And he ends up in Belize. He goes down through Mexico. And along the way, he picks up and runs into all these strange characters. And (laughs) it's just, he kind of runs into one person after another. And he just sees the world through his point of view. So we feel like things are happening because we're experiencing some new thing or some new character through the point of view of this character, uh, through the point of view of this, this person whose, whose worldview, if you will, is so uniquely uh, uh, colored by Portis. And so it feels like things are happening, even though almost nothing is happening. So it's got that caper vibe to it, but it's really not, they're not really capers except that the characters are just sort of wandering around from one thing to the next. Yeah. Yeah. I, I love what you're saying about the, the point of view and, and the voice, you know, the, these characters voices are so um, strong and, and yeah. um, 
you know, they are, um, well, here's a question. Do you, do you see his narrators, there's, there's something, what's the word, portesian, uh, <laughs> whatever the, whatever the adjective, the adjective of portis is, um, about these, about these narrators, um, and there's this interesting uh, naivete on the one hand about how the world works. I, mean, I guess Norwood is that's that's third person, but but it's it's third person close, a very yeah. close third person in Norwood. Yeah. Um, and so it's these characters feel very much like Portis characters. Um, would you say they feel um, distinct from one another, or, or do they kind of run together for you? And, and we're going we're to count both character, both the, narr- the sort of main characters and these sort of ancillary characters who who pop in. That's a great question. Well, I, I think that they, I think when you read a Portis book, it feels like a Portis book. But I don't think that's the same thing as the characters feeling like Portis types, if that makes sense. Mm-hmm. Like I think Maddie Ross, from the first line of the book, is a distinct character in all of literature. You know, yeah. there aren't a lot of even young, uh, sort of young women characters who are coming of age and going through something yeah. tough. There's nobody else that's quite like her. Yeah. Um, and so I, th- and I think that um, Norwood is is very distinct. And, and I think part of it is that Portis has the ability to use language um, in unique ways uh-huh. for each character. Like he understands how to make characters talk in a way that is both Portesian, as you said, but also unique to that person. So the like, you know, the sort of King James, the commitment to the King James sort of language that Maddie Ross has mm-hmm. is both Portesian, but also different than the way the character in the dog of the South speaks or the way Norwood speaks in Norwood. Yeah. So it's kind of both. I think that's one of the things that, that makes people love all of his books. You know, yeah. that, that makes him his whole canon beloved instead of being a, an author who wrote one beloved book which yeah. if he had just written True Grit and that was the only thing people cared about it would have still been he'd, he'd still be memorable yeah the one thing I love about True Grit so is I, I love both of the movies and I especially love the Coen brother Co- yeah. Coen brothers movie yeah I think it's um, funnier yeah and it, it, it feels truer to the uh, um, to the spirit of yeah, the yeah, of the yeah. book, although I, I was reading uh, in his obituary, or uh, his sort of memorial that his family wrote, that they they were a little bit snide about the the movies. It was funny, you know. But anyway, uh, what I one thing that and I don't as much as I love those movies, the, the one thing there, there was one thing about the book that the that the movies couldn't do, um, or certainly didn't do, and I don't think they really could have done, and that is as you're reading the book, this voice. You know this this fourteen year old girl talking the way she talks um, seems so almost otherworldly. You know, th- th- as you said, this sort of King James no contractions, you know, way yeah. of talking that she has, uh, yeah. very stilted. Um, and I think what you miss in the movies is that this is being told by an old woman. This you know, and so yeah. when yeah. when this old when old Maddie Ross is telling what young Maddie Ross said. In the movie, it's just young Maddie Ross talking like an old lady, and in the book, oh, yeah. it's an old lady remembering 
you know, and, and narrating the story. And you're always conscious, at least I, I feel, I know I am, that this is an old lady telling the story. And, and, you, and, and I'm wanting to take everything with just a little grain of salt um, that you can't quite do in a movie where it's being told directly or, or portrayed directly. Yeah, in the book, he kind of makes you, you can kind of question whether she's remembering things correctly. Mm-hmm. You know, whether you can kind of d- doubt her, her, you know, whether she's gotten all the details right or yeah. whether they've, the legend of it has kind of grown in her own mind. She's probably told the story 40 times, 100 times before it yeah. became the version that's in the book. And so Portis kind of plays with that. But yeah, I don't know how you, I don't know how you could possibly do that in a, in a movie unless you actually tell it multiple times mm-hmm. kind of play with the details and change things subtly from place to place i mean maybe that's why the coen brothers went and then made an anthology of western stories <laughs> yeah right yeah. yeah well the um um this idea that of of the reader passing judgment on you know having to decide how much of this is true and how much of this is not true that's another big thing in portis's canon you know i mean in um I've been reading about through the Masters of Atlantis and that, that um, I keep, you know, that's, that's third person too. It's, is, I was talking about narrators, but the, I think everything is, except for True Grit is third, uh, no, Dog of the South is first. Dog person. of the South is first, yeah. yeah right. Um, anyway, um, where was I going with that? Oh, the idea, especially in, um, in Masters of Atlantis, where, we've got this, this very naive, um, point of view care. Well, yeah, the, the, um, uh, now I can't remember his name, the, um, Jimerson, Mr. Jimerson, uh, Lamar. Yeah. Lamar Jimerson, who, who founds this, um, uh, the secret order basically on a big mistake, um, and his naivete, (laughs) um, and, and his misunderstanding of what's going on around him is just so, um, it's it's just so delightful and 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 um and the way it puts the reader in the position to pass judgment on these these things that the that the narrator or not the narrator but they're being presented to us where we know yeah. more about the situation than the than the main character does is just one of my favorite things that happens in Portis and you know in Norwood he's this babe in the woods <laughs> he keeps getting yeah. getting you know suckered by people yeah it seems like there's this sort of um this the question of like justice is sort of at the core of his stories in the sense that characters are always going through things and feeling like they're they're victims of (laughs) like the scheme of the universe or something yeah and in some ways you know like maddie ross was victim to a crime sure and she feels like she wants to pursue that and so it seems like in that first book he has this big question of justice at work and then in the subsequent works you know like dog of the south like i said the guy's wife who he's <laughs> not great to runs away with his with her ex-husband in his car and he chases her down because he gets the bill from the credit card company that shows all the places that he went and so he feels like he has to go you know solve this problem and you know yeah. right the wrong that's been done to him but really, you know, the degree to which it's a real injustice that's been done to these characters is always a little bit in question. But they're so committed to the idea that that injustice has been done to them. Yeah. And I think that there's a lot of humor in that and that Portis is writing in a very tongue-in-cheek way about the, the degree to which his characters actually are seeing the world as it really is. Yeah, 
Right. Yeah. Norwood making a, uh, this, this trip to New York city to retrieve $70. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) He's very committed to it. To a flim flam man. (laughs) uh, How would you rate? So these, of these four that are considered his best one, how would you, what order would you put them in? in terms of their quality uh, yeah i mean true grit is just so incredibly good i i, I don't know yeah. between true grit and dog of the south I, I um those are to me these are the top two i agree yeah um but i don't know i don't know which one it kind of depends on what day what day it is it, it i would say that um um I, I think probably true grit is the better book um, Dog of the South is is slightly more to my taste than than True Grit because of the humor. Uh, yeah, it's just it's just um, um, and it's not that it's and True Grit is very much to my taste too. It's just that that the that narrator he's just so ridiculous and <laughs> the fact that he thinks he's Hernando De Soto because he's tracking the uh, the people's yeah. uh, credit card bills, you know. <laughs> Uh, through Mexico, uh, through Central America. It's just, it's so, it's so ridiculous in his sense of, I mean, I guess. That's the common I, thing though, right? They have a, this sense of self-worth that's, that is far greater than it should be. Yeah. All of his characters. Yeah. Would you say that's true of Maddie Ross and True Grit? I think she at least has a sense of, a greater sense of her own capacity. Yeah. She believes that she can do things that she's not capable of. Um, mm-hmm. Although I wonder if, uh, you know, it's, I was thinking, I was comparing um, Syme in Dog of the South, <laughs> who, he, who, he run, who our character runs up against and is, you know, winds up on the road with. Yeah. And I was thinking about him in comparison to, uh, um, well, I'm drawing a blank right now. Uh, um, True Grit, what's the guy's name? Which, which guy? The Cog, Rooster Cogburn. Cogburn. I don't know. Like only one of the most important <laughs> grand literary characters ever in my, I just drew a blank on a podcast. Um, but I was thinking about the way in, it, it might not seem obvious, but Simon Cogburn are not, there's a lot of similarities between huh. like Simon's a little more ridiculous in yeah. terms of the things he says. And he's very committed to this one, to this one writer who's, you know, just writes yeah. self-help books for business people. <laughs> and he, he acts like he, you know, he says he makes Shakespeare look bad. <laughs> Not so many words that I can't use on this podcast, but you know, Cogburn himself is kind of a, um, he's a little bit washed up is maybe the, a, you yeah. know, he, he's capable, yeah. but he also, you know, thinks a little more highly of himself than he probably should. And <laughs> he proves he proves more heroic than uh, than Syme does, perhaps. Yeah. So I wonder, do you think that Portis, he, despite the humor in his later books, that there's a sort of, um, you know, there's maybe a romanticism at the core of True Grit that has given way to a sort of cynicism in the other books, despite huh. their humor? Like, is there a cynicism at the core of the humor that he has in his later books? That's an interesting or question. And I feel like the in, in True Grit, there is, while we've got characters that are, that are a little skewed, they still are within the realm of, um, it, we've got, we've got you know, Matty Ross, whose, whose sense of justice is a little, a little overdeveloped, but it's still, it, it's still an actual wrong that she's going to avenge. Yeah. And yeah. Um, 
And Rooster Cogburn is, he's ridiculous, and yet, as you said, exceedingly capable in a way that I'm not sure anybody, any of the other ancillary characters yeah. um, are really capable in the way that that Rooster Cogburn is. Um, yeah, I guess that's why I wonder if there's like a cynicism, because it seems like in, in True Grit, he's at least participating in the tradition of Western stories with his yeah. own perspective, right? So he kind of tweaks it in the way that Charles Portis would, in the Portesian way. Yeah. Uh, but then it seems like in the other char- the other stories, there's really not as many... You mentioned kind of off-air that there's this that it kind of functions in the uh, John Kennedy tool realm, yeah. Confederacy of Dunces. And his other books are much more of a Confederacy of Dunces sort of tone to them, mm-hmm. where the characters... You know, are they are they anywhere near as capable and profound as they think they are? No, yeah. they're not really. Yeah. So, is that cynicism, or is that just the way? Does he see that? Does he does he see the world that way, and then able to look at it and laugh? You know, Portis. Mm-hmm. I, I guess we'd have to talk to him but, to find <laughs> out for sure. But it seems like that. But and maybe maybe cynicism is the wrong word. Maybe that's- I I guess I'm. Uh, I am resistant to the word cynicism, but maybe only because I don't like people I like being called cynical. You know what I'm saying? I mean, maybe, maybe <laughs> yeah, cynicism, yeah. Maybe, you may be right. Um, well, maybe it's more cynical than true grit is what I'm trying. Maybe that's the better yeah. way of saying it. I don't know. Yeah. yeah. It's, it's almost like all those other books are a, um, a caricature of, of true grit, almost a parody of, of true grit. Um. Mm. Although you know Nor- Norwood was actually before True Grit, but but the idea of somebody oh leaving, true true yeah the idea of somebody leaving Arkansas to go find you know to 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 insist on just because they have an overdeveloped sense of justice um, that's what happens in well, I guess in Norwood he's he's not leaving Arkansas but he's he's leaving a town that's very close to Arkansas you know Ralph Texas uh, which is just a, you know close to Texarkana and then um, Dog of the South. Right, it's it's it is this overdeveloped sense of of justice, which in both in, in Norwood that's never that that just feels it does feel cynical. It feels like a fool's errand the whole time. Um, in True Grit, I'm not True Grit. In uh, in Dog of the South, it feels like maybe by the time it's over, it, it kind of feels like maybe that that trip was worth making. Um, and, and I don't know, how do you feel about Norwood? Do you think that trip was worth making? I feel like the trip of reading the book is definitely worth making. <laughs> <laughs> you mean like, does he learn, like, does he learn something or does he accomplish what he set out to accomplish? What do you mean by worth making? I don't know. Norwood, when you get to the end of that book, it's like, too bad that guy didn't just keep his job and stay home. I, I, that's, that's the way I oh, feel. right. Yeah. 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 Um, whereas Dog of the South, um, We've got a man who it feels like he does learn and change. You know, his his, his yeah. perspective on his wife, for instance. That that book in the end doesn't feel so terribly cynical to me. Yeah, that's fair. Yeah, yeah, that makes sense. I guess I was when I was talking about cynicism. I guess I was trying to. I was like I said, I was thinking about the difference between the secondary characters, between yeah. how we get what we get in Cogburn and True Grit, who, as we said, is capable, although kind of ridiculous. But then in these other stories, there's nobody that's quite as capable. Even the narrators, though, aren't really as capable as Matty <laughs> Ross. Although, the, you know, they are, what's his name in um, Dog of the South is good with cars. Yeah. Yeah. So. Um, 
let's talk about flim flam, flim flammery a little bit. Yeah, yeah, let's do it. Because um, I, 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 I love the, I love stories about flim flam men and, you know, that kind of thing. Um, and so Charles Portis has got plenty of that. Um, <laughs> and the one thing I love about a, a flim flam story is that a flim flammer or a charlatan, um, the, it, that person is a, is a storyteller, is a, is a purveyor of fiction. Um, but that fiction always requires participation by the audience, right? So huh. I'm typically, right? A, a good, a good flim flam artist, um, suggests ideas that then the, the, um, audience has to fill in the blank. So, uh, you know, often a, a, a good flim flam artist isn't directly lying um, or they don't, I mean, a, a lot of the falsehood that's generated is generated on the part of the, of the audience, right? The, the audience who's, who's greedy or fearful or whatever, um, as the, as the flim flammers make suggestions, the audience then fills in the blanks and that's, and there's something about the, the fact that I, um, when the, when the charlatan, you know, pretends some sort of, I don't know, mock humility or, you know, I, I would never put myself forward. I, w- I would never want to take your money or whatever. And then the person says, no, here, take my money. Right. That's, that's how flim flammery works. Um, and I think there's some really interesting um, parallels there between, you know, more respectable kinds of storytelling. Maybe the follow-up to the charlatan's boy should be called the flim flam, the flim flammer. Yeah, maybe so. <laughs> so, um, who would you, what character would you say is most representative of this or which book do you think most captures this flim flam idea that you, that appeals to you in his work? Um, well, I mean, certainly the master in masters of Atlantis, um, you know, those, uh, Oh, popper Austin popper is a, is very much a, a flim flammer. Um, I mean, the, that, the whole, the whole story, you know, is launched by, a, a flim flammer who convinces um, uh, Lamar Jimerson that, that, you know, he's the representative of, of Atlantis, you know, that he has this book and then everything unspools from that misunderstanding. You know, that is to say, Mr. Jimerson um, uh, takes that story and the, the, not even the skeleton of a story that's provided by the man who's, who's really just trying to get his, hotel room paid for or a few meals and then he spins that into a whole you know secret society yeah um, and um so that's Noman society yeah <laughs> however you pronounce that yeah and then um the uh there's the um the world's smallest perfect man in uh in norwood who <laughs> <laughs> that phrase itself says everything, <laughs> isn't it? Yeah, the world's smallest perfect man is uh, is sort of portison in a nutshell. Yeah, as if there's like who's the world's largest p- perfect man? <laughs> like he just he raises these questions, these like the, as you said, like he raises these gaps. Yes, that, think, that you start thinking about it, and you, like the implication is there's supposed to be a counter to the thing that he says, like there's <laughs> yeah. supposed to be a largest perfect man. And then you think about it and you realize how ridiculous it is. And there's, there's just so much humor. Like 
like the punchline of the you can it's a joke in four words or whatever i know it's amazing and that's that's i think that's what i love so much about what he does is this suggestiveness um of of the way he can in 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 four words sort of spin this whole um you know it doesn't tell us much about actually it ends up telling us a good bit about the world's smallest perfect man but um (laughs) but just that phrase fires the imagination yeah, exactly. And but, it lets but, me do the work of, as a reader, you know, it lets me do a lot of the work. And that's, that is um, so important in making a story believable, is giving the reader something to do. So to provide the, the reader with some, um, with some raw material, and by that I, I'm really talking about sensory input, that then their judgment can go to work on. And so, you know, not telling them what to think so much as giving them opportunities to think for, you know, to, to then use their own judgment. Um, mm. And that's what Portis is such a genius at. Well, this is one of the reasons what you're describing, I think, is, is one of the reasons why the first line of True Grit is so interesting. Yeah. Where Maddie Ross says, do you mind if I read the first sentence? Please do. She says, people do not give it credence that a 14-year-old girl could leave home and go off in the wintertime to avenge her father's blood but it did not seem so strange then. Although I will say it did not happen every day. <laughs> There's like, the sentence kind of goes on and on in a Matty Ross sort of way. And then you think you get to the end. It did not so stre- seem so strange then. You know, that's, that's, that's a good sentence, right? That's fine. Um, the, you know, it's, it's yeah. humorous even up to that point. But then when he adds the phrase, the clause, although I will say it did not happen every day, it changes, <laughs> it changes the whole sense of humor of it the trajectory of the book is completely yeah. different because of that clause, because it asks us as readers to do some work. It allows our, it fires our imaginations because we begin to think not just about her, but about the whole world differently. Um, yeah. we, we understand her in a different way. It changes the nature of the adventure. It adds some humor to it. So, you know, in just a few words, the whole experience of the book changes. And that's not something that every writer is capable of doing. And I think partly because not every writer is capable of recognizing the effect of, of words like that. Mm-hmm. Like it takes a certain giftedness to, even if it's an instinct, maybe that's all it is. It takes a certain instinct to recognize that an extra clause there changes the nature of the book and invites the reader in, in a way that it wouldn't, that the book wouldn't do without that there. Yeah. So, um, I, yeah, do you, so you're, you're suggesting there's nothing to learn there except Portis is brilliant and, uh, and I'm, it, and we're less brilliant. <laughs> that we are less bright. Well, I think that if that's not clear after like two paragraphs of reading true grit, then, <laughs> then maybe we're just characters in a poor Charles Portis novel. <laughs> yeah. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Right. <laughs> Yeah. Um, There's lots to learn there, though. Yeah. Especially from a craft perspective. I, I, so, the, it's one thing I love. So, building from, from that opening of True Grit, um, so there, there are a couple other things going on in that, um, um, uh, that first, that opening sentence. Um, including the idea that when it says people don't give it credence that a 14 year old girl could go out and avenge her father's death. Um, it's she's putting this almost impossible scenario out there 
it's almost like the, the thesis statement of an essay, right? Yeah. I'm going to prove this thing that you don't think is, that you don't agree with. And then she sets about and does it in the course of that book, which I, I think is, is so, um, and again, that is very Charles Portis to create these wild situations and then somehow convince you that, oh, okay, I can see how maybe that yeah, could happen yeah. that way. Yeah, exactly. I, I, well, it's like you said, the, the, in Norwood, he goes off for 70 bucks or you know, yeah. even the, the concept of, tra- you know, in the 70s, tracking down your wife and her ex-husband in your car because you got a bill from the credit card company. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Um, and I think the, I think the question always in, I, I don't know people who don't like Charles Portis. Like I, people either don't know him or they love him. It seems to me. Um, yeah. and yet you can, it's, it's interesting to see which of his books people like less and like more. And I think the, the one, the ones that I like less are the ones where I don't quite believe, like it gets a little too wild and I can't quite believe it. Do you feel the same way about Walker Percy? Yes. Because there's a couple books for me that are the, that are like that. Is it, um, what's the, well, what's the one with the telescope? Uh, I don't, I don't know the difference between them because they all sound alike to me. The last gentleman and the, and the, and they the all sound alike. Lot. Yeah. yeah. I think it might be Lance a lot. Um, but there's a couple of his books where they, the, they get to a little extreme. Yeah. Like said, yeah. You know, scenarios to where you, it kind of takes me out of the story a little bit. Mm-hmm. So, uh, so the reason I, I put um, Dog of the South and True Grit at the top of my list is those books feel to me like they, they expand my idea of what, how wild and crazy this world that we live in is. Mm. And then in a book like Masters of Atlantis, I sort of feel like, you know, you've kind of over like this is a this is just a, a little beyond my threshold this doesn't this feels like you're spinning a a hilarious tale of something that i just can't buy at all and i love it and and so insofar as i am willing to suspend my disbelief it's like this is this is fun but i'm not even suspending my disbelief very much for um like they like i said in uh, true grit that first sentence requires a suspension of disbelief you know the idea that a 14 year old girl can go out and avenge her father's death but then the book demonstrates to me that no this this feels like something could happen in the world god made and Mm. in masters of atlantis it feels like we're by the time it's over we're we're no longer in the world god made we're in some crazy crazy world and i think that's where um and and by the way that threshold is different for different people in terms of what's too wild and and wacky so some people i mean i'm what i'm not one of the people who love um oh shoot what's that douglas adam hitchhiker's guide to the galaxy yeah i mean people love that book for me it's like this just doesn't that's just a little that doesn't feel like it's telling me anything about the world i live in um do you think it's good is there something like where he's it, it kind of toes the line of uh not being clear about what it wants to be genre wise it's not even that it's it's i mean that's also something that's annoying but but the uh, <laughs> but it, it really is where does um yeah for me it's a matter of this does this you know uh, stories about florida expand my notions of what reality <laughs> i mean i'm talking about news stories from florida you know right. florida man thing <laughs> um yeah and um and so you know 
Charles Portis at his best feels like Florida, good, really good Florida man stories. And Charles Portis at his not best to me, in, in my judgment, is when he goes beyond. Things start happening. They're too wacky even for the state of Florida. Too wacky even for the state of too wacky even for this for the for a Charles Portis story. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, right. Do you think he backed himself into a corner though, in a sense? Like he created, uh, you know, first he does the, the, the well, he does Norwood, then he does True Grit, then he does Dog of the South, and at that point, either he backed himself into a corner or he just personally wanted to keep going in terms of <laughs> the eccentricities of his characters and of the world. Yeah, it, it, yeah, and maybe his threshold, and maybe it's just a matter of his threshold was different from my threshold which is fine. <laughs> well, that's, yeah, I mean, I would, I would love to know which was his favorite of his books. Yeah. Yeah, I'd, I'd like to know too. Um, so you mentioned, uh, we need to wrap it up here in, in a yeah. minute, but, but you mentioned um, um, Walker Percy. And yeah. I'm surprised at how long it took, it, it took for Walker Percy to come up in this conversation <laughs> because, um, uh, you know, in that theory of, that um you know for a while there there were people i, I never knew, knew how seriously people took this idea but that that confederacy of dunces was actually written by walker percy under a pseudonym do you know do people ever take that theory seriously or well it's a great theory and like i could theoretically see it maybe being possible it would also explain why he championed it so much right uh, but i mean only i mean we know about john kennedy tool though so sure. Yeah. But anyway, the idea, so, so sometimes when you're reading, when I'm reading Walker Percy, I see passages that I think, actually, I can see how somebody might think this writer could have written Confederacy of Dunces. Yeah. Um, and, and it feels to me like um, Charles Portis lives in that overlap where Walker Percy and John Kennedy Toole, you know, well, where they overlap. Um, there's a Venn diagram. <laughs> yeah, yeah. In the Venn diagram, there's that, that overlap where you can make the case, you, you can possibly believe that, that Walker Percy wrote Compares to Your Dunces, and that's where Charles Portis lives. Is it a Southern that's, thing? Like a Southern sense of humor thing, you think? I don't know, because I don't, it's, it's not like, there are lots of Southern funny people who don't feel like, I mean, they're, they're the, um, um, Part of it is this, uh, this idea. It is it is southern, specifically that that sort of um, that patrician southern, you know, well educated but still you know um, distinctly southern, but also really well educated. And then in the case of Confederacy of Dunces, um, you know, our our you know, main character there is participating, he's participating in that tradition in a, in a off kilter way, right? He's, he's not, he's certainly not patrician. He's not, is he well, I mean, is he well-educated or is he just sort of, sort of this autodidact, you know, I mean, he's, he certainly was a, he was a graduate student. He made it that far. Anyway, I'm not, I don't want to get into that. Um, so I don't know if that's a question, but the floor is now open for discussion. Well, the I do think the characters, you know, the character in the Dog of the South, although less uh, perhaps of a jerk directly <laughs> than uh, the character in Confederacy of Dunces, is not, they're not unlike one another in terms of their sort of, uh, 
not really seeing the world for what it is. <laughs> um, and like the, and that's kind of what drives the action of the story, right? That they're, they sort of see reality through a, le- through a lens that is not true. Mm-hmm. And so that's, you know, that's where the humor comes from. That's where, you know, that's where it, it sort of asks a lot of the reader because you have to, uh, suspend your disbelief, but then also you have to decide whether you, this person is appealing, like whether he's worth rooting for. Yeah. Um, I think if you don't like those books, then it's because you don't feel like the characters are worth rooting for. Yeah. Um, so I, I think that I, th- I think that, um, there's this, <laughs> there's this f- famous, um, uh, blurb from Roy Blunt Jr., I don't know if you've heard this. I think it's on the back of True Grit. He says something like, uh, Charles Portis could have been Cormac McCarthy, but he wanted to be funny. (laughs) Um, And, you know, in some ways, I think that's a more interesting comparison or a more accurate comparison than the... um, Like, if you took the Venn diagram of Charles Uh Portis's work, there'd be the part of it that's the the, uh, Cormac McCarthy, and then there's the part of it that's the... uh, the, um, uh, John Kennedy Tool, Walker mm-hmm. Percy part of it. And I'd be curious to know which parts of those Venn diagrams go together. Uh-huh. <laughs> is there any of the Cormac McCarthy part that is also the yeah. Walker Percy, John Kennedy Tool part? Yeah. Um, because, but it just speaks to the, you know, we can talk about Charles Portis in comparison to uh, Walker Percy and John Kennedy Tool, and we can compare him to Cormac McCarthy, and we can compare him to, you know, I see Flannery O'Connor sometimes. Like, he, you, yeah. you wouldn't be surprised if, if Charles Portis was a, read, uh, read an O'Connor story once a week, right? Right. Um, and, and then in some ways, you, you even see like uh, Mark Twain, right? So, you know, mm-hmm. if you can look at someone like Charles Portis, who for whatever reason is not so well known, but his Venn diagram captures all of these incredible voices yeah. that have been um, not just great Southern writers, but great writers for any region. Right. And the great American voices. Like it just goes to show how great of a writer Charles Portis was. And it makes it even more mystifying that he's not, that he is the, the best, you know, the, the greatest unknown writer in America. Yeah. Um, and because none of those comparisons feel, you know, whether it's Twain or John Kennedy tool or, Walker or Walker Percy or Cormac McCarthy, you don't look at any of those comparisons and say, "Oh, that's nonsense." Right? You know, the case can be made, and it's a reasonable case. And there's not many writers that can share that many Venn diagrams with that many different writers. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, I think that's a great place to wrap up uh, with that that insight. Um, I'm glad you I'm glad you mentioned Cormac McCarthy because because um, that's that's exactly right. Um, Okay, so has um, I, I? I always like to ask what writers make you want to write. I'm, I'm going to ask you: In what ways has Charles Portis made you want to write, or has he? Oh no, he definitely he definitely does. Um, I think he there's a sort of um, I don't know if it's in the I don't know if it's voice exactly, but there's a sort of energy to his writing uh-huh. that when you and I don't mean energy in the sense that like uh, there's an electricity, maybe is the Mm -hmm. better word that to his writing that seems to come so easily. Right. Like it seems like the words just rolled onto the page onto Mm -hmm. through, you know, through like there wasn't any effort into (laughs) whatever came was delivered onto his typewriter paper. 
but you know that that wasn't true um, because that's not the way writing works. And in some ways, you know, that, that electricity or that energy is motivating because, yeah. you know, I, I read it and I want to figure out, you know, what is it that, that does that? Because sometimes it's hard to put your finger on it. Is it he had, that he had such a pure sense of voice or that he knew how to string sentences together or it was, was it that his imagination was able to see the world in such a unique way? And there's always this, with writers like that, for me, it's this search for what they what it was about them that produced yeah. that making it look easy sense about it. Yeah. Because I mean, I know, I know it wasn't easy, but he got to that place for a certain set of, because he had a certain set of skills and he, and, you know, there was yeah. a certain an instinct and a, and a natural skill combined with hard work. And so when yeah. I sit down to write, having read Charles Portis, it's kind of like a search for how he did that. Yeah. And I know I'm not going to make it, but right. can I, can I try to put my finger on something like that? Can I, can I approximate um, whatever it was that he was doing just in my own search for it, like in my own work, you know? So he, writers like him make me want to do the work, if that makes sense. Yeah, like, yeah, yeah. Do the work that sometimes other writers don't make, you know, I'm at like their books or like their stories, but it's more like an escape. But uh -huh. writers like this, it's the escape, but it's also the motivation to put in the hours, you know, to hit the keys and... yeah and 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 do you know put some blood sweat and tears into it yeah that's great all right man well yeah well, thanks for I having me to do this yeah, and uh great. here's to charles portis <laughs> cheers cheers <laughs> all, all right well, see thank you talk soon all right all right bye the rabbit room has partnered with lipscomb university to make this podcast possible Lipscomb has graciously given us access to their recording studio in the Center for Entertainment and Arts building. We're so grateful for their sponsorship, their encouragement, and the good work they do in Nashville. Special shout out as well to Jess Ray for letting us use her song Too Good as part of this podcast. Visit JessRayMusic.com to hear more of her beautiful songs. The Habit Membership is a library of resources for writers by me, Jonathan Rogers. More importantly, The Habit is a hub of community where like-minded writers gather to discuss their work and give each other a little more courage. Find out more at thehabit.co. This podcast was produced by The Rabbit Room, where art nourishes community and community nourishes art. All our podcasts are made possible by the generous support of our members. To learn more about us, visit rabbitroom.com and to become a member, rabbitroom.com slash donate.